Hello, and welcome to the Identity Paradox Inside the Racial Pharmacon, a podcast examining anti-racist theories and practices aimed at dismantling destructive identitarian politics and ideologies, both in the U.S. and abroad. Please note that discussions deal with very difficult subject matter, so every episode comes with a general content warning. And I'm your host, Carlos Gallego, Associate Professor of English, as well as both Distinguished Teaching Professor in Humanities here at St. Olaf College. This podcast is part of the programming brought to you by the Bolt Chair Endowment. So special thanks to the Bolt family for making this programming possible. If you enjoyed today's podcast, make sure to subscribe for future episodes. And now, the show. Hello and welcome from downtown Minneapolis. And uh, that'll explain some of the background noise you're going to hear from time to time. This is The Identity Paradox, a look inside the racial pharmacon, a podcast where we discuss the dialectical tensions inherent in the concept of identity and how such tensions specifically play out when addressing the pharmacological, the pharmacology, excuse me, and that's a pharmacology with a K of race. Uh, that is the poisonous as well as medicinal properties of race and racial identity as general concepts. But today's initial episode is not going to be the official introduction I just outlined, which I hope to return to in the not so distant future, where we'll unpack some of the aims, theoretical models, methodologies, and practices we'll be exploring and applying. I use the pronoun we a lot sometimes, I think, to distance myself from any accountability. But um, as I was saying, today's not going to be that kind of introductory uh, episode today is dedicated to unpacking the, I guess I'm going to stick with that box metaphor, unpacking the intellectual treasure chest that is our guest, a person that I think has a wealth of experiential knowledge as well as some serious intellectual energy. And I'm of course talking about Dr. Adrian Merritt, visiting assistant professor in German affiliated with race and critical ethnic studies. And I already told Adrian this, I just kind of pissed from her signature. So I love the fact that you turned the C into critical because uh, it's actually just race and ethnic studies at St. Olaf, but you, you did something with that acronym that I never uh, was able to achieve personally. Like I offered comparative as like, no, we're just going to go with race and ethnic studies. I'm like, but what does the C stand for? But now we know it stood for critical this whole time and it was just latent waiting to become manifest. I'm gonna start using psychoanalytic terms now. Um, so thanks for that editorial input. So before I start rambling, I think I already started. Um, how you doing, Adrian? And welcome. Doing pretty well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, I know that in addition to your current position at Olaf, you are, and I'm just gonna list here, a member of the steering committee on diversity, decolonization, and the German curriculum a contributor to the German Studies Collaboratory, I really like that term, uh, executive committee member for the MLA's Germanic Philology and Linguistics Group, uh, German Studies Association Conference Planning Committee member, and series editor, because that's not enough, of the New Directions in Medieval Studies uh, series for Bloomsbury Press. So yeah, uh, how do you find time to teach is the first question. Uh, I mean, uh, part of it is after, you know, 10 plus years of teaching uh, German language in a variety of situations, 
And I say situations rather than positions simply because, you know, I was an adjunct in community colleges for about five years. Uh, they call us uh, freedom, freeway flyers, right? Because you're, you know, you're teaching one class here in the morning, another class there in the afternoon, and you're putting out about four, 500 miles in the LA area, at least I was. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, as much as I want to uh, maybe complain about <laughs> institutions where I've worked full-time, there's still more institutional support than when I was an adjunct teaching, you know, working three different part-time jobs, um, you know, teaching four or five classes a semester. Yeah, uh, that sounds rough. <laughs> and writing my dissertation. Ooh, well, that, you gotta love the, you know, the pros of free market capitalism is the freedom to work <laughs> all those jobs at once because, you know, you want to. Um, we're not going to talk about any of that stuff unless it comes up in our conversation today, simply because, uh, and this was collaborative, I'm not dictating to Adrian. I don't think she would allow me to do that anyway. Um, we're going to talk about a, uh, and I don't know if you've noticed, but you have it from Adrian, uh, and you correct me if I'm wrong, Adrian, but I think you and I both suffer from uh, tangentialitis. Uh, so, but we tend to like bring it home nevertheless right no yeah. yeah yeah so uh in an effort to try and avoid that we're going to stick to for the meantime um gesturing towards decolonial futures a uh website that you encouraged me to uh, check out and that i have to admit after uh browsing through it for a couple of hours uh it's a definitely a mind trip and i think part of it intends to be precisely that in a variety of ways uh so uh, on the website for uh, what is referred to in terms of uh, initials GTDF, uh, it's defined as the following. Uh, Gesturing Towards Decolonial Futures is an arts research collective that uses this website as a workspace for collaborations around different kinds of artistic, pedagogical, cartographic, and relational experiments that aim to identify and deactivate colonial habits of being and to gesture towards the possibility of decolonial futures. GTDF is also a practice. I really like that, by the way, that you both theory practice, very important. That is multi-layered and rather difficult to explain, but we will give it a go. And that's also really cool, the vulnerability, the honesty there of saying like, this is gonna be hard work, but we're gonna still take some risks here and become vulnerable or be vulnerable. It is about, number one, it's about hospicing worlds that are dying within and around us with care and integrity, as well as attention to the lessons these deaths offer, while also assisting with the birth of new, potentially wiser possibilities without suffocating them with projections. Two, it is about facing our complicity in violence and unsubstantiality and its implications with the courage of really, of really seeking to connect with the collective pain, past, present, and future. Three, it is about composting our individual and collective shit with humility, joy, generosity, and compassion, trying to, quote, dig deeper and relate wider. Four, it is about holding space for difficult for difficult conversations and silences without relationships falling apart. Five, it is about recognizing and taking responsibility for harm harmful modern colonial habits of being in ourselves and around us 
that cannot be stopped by the intellect, by good intentions, and by spiritual, artistic, or embodied practices alone. Six, it is about interrupting modern colonial addictions, in particular addictions to consumptions of knowledge, of self-actualization, of experience, of critique, of alternatives, of relationships, and of communities. Seven, it is about recognizing that we are an extension of the land metabolism that is the planet, not the other way around. Preparing for the end of the world as we know it and showing up differently so that, quote, another end of the world becomes possible. Eight, it is about disinvesting in desires for unrestricted autonomy, authority, certainty, control, protagonism, purity, popularity, superiority, and validation to create space for accountabilities, for response abilities, for exiled capacities, and for deeper intimacies. Nine, it involves learning and unlearning, disarming and decentering, dethroning and de-arrogantizing, detoxifying and decluttering, mourning, grieving, and hearing, digesting, and metabolizing, seeing ourselves as cute and pathetic so that we, so that the wider metabolism can breathe and more easily with more and move more easily within and around us. And finally, 10, it involves loosening our attachments to our self images and to what we think we want so that we might instead step up, own up, clean up, grow up, wake up, and show up to do what is really needed, whether it fits or not with our personal agendas. So I wanted to ask you about two of the 10 points, the first and the last one. Um, uh, the first one being number one, obviously. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the concept of hospicing in the context of this uh, project, uh, because you've mentioned it in a couple of times in conversation about uh, hospicing institutions and, you know, different things that most people don't imagine in terms of hospice. Mm -hmm. well, I mean, I think, I think the key to understand this is that, or at least for me, the first question that comes to mind is whether or not the institution or academia is compatible with decolonization. And I mean, I'll be quite frank, I, I think that while we can make decolonial moves towards something, the reality of the fact is this is systemic. And so since it is systemic, you cannot, you cannot, you can, your imagination can only go so far because the foundation, the structure, everything is built upon something that prohibits an expansion or, you know, kind of this move away from. And, but at the same time, there are people in this in these institutions. So you have to, it has to be like a two prong effect, I would say, right? Because you can't, you can't simply say, um, okay, the institution is now abolished, everything's gone and um, screw that, right? You know, you're out of a job, you can't finish your degree, you're gonna have to go and do something else. We've seen this happen at institutions, right? This, this is not, Unfortunately, that is the case. And I think that that is more, um, I would say endemic of what is actually going on that people don't want to recognize rather than 
kind of the side effect or people will blame it on finances or other things. It's, I think that that's, that's, that's not the right way to come about it. But I think that that also that shows kind of a very, you know, if you think about almost like a Foucauldian kind of prison of the mind kind of thing, where it's like, you cannot think beyond the walls of the house that the walls of the house are not simply where within which you're sitting, but it's also within you. And so kind of thinking about that in order to break away from that conceptualization of the institution um, and, and start to move away from thinking about it as a source of support, um, you have to simultaneously hospice or bring to a close and make moves how things are currently while also having really tough conversations, I would say, and then also putting those conversations, transferring them into action plans of how things could be different, right? Because at the end of the day, even I think that there's, you know, this cognitive distortion of people thinking, well, I'm pretty comfortable. I like my job. You know, my students seem to, to do well. That's because they don't see the bars for what, what they are, that they don't actually see that there is a limitation with, with what can actually be done. And so, you know, it's kind of that fallacy of, of, of the there over there of, the, of discrimination and isms and other things that, oh, it's not really part of it because it doesn't impact me. But the reality is, is that if you don't actually see it for what it is, you don't know what it is impacting you or not. And so I would say the hospicing really starts with awareness. I mean, it really does start. I mean, and that's kind of, you know, I, I see when, the, when they're talking about this hospicing worlds that are dying within, right? And that's kind of that get prison metaphor, which I know makes people, some people uncomfortable. But I think this, if you use that, then that ties well into things that, you know, Angela Davis and others have talked about. Um, um, but dying within and around us, right? And it's that care and integrity, right? So this is, but it's not, you know, you have to allow one thing to grow while letting the other other thing die. And that's what I think that they're, um, you know, at least my interpretation of without suffocating them with projections, that you have to start to recognize the things and see them for what they are and kind of make moves to prepare people for the change while also making a move to plan and bring about said change. But I think they have to be separate things because that change can't exist within the system as is, otherwise it will be suffocated. And it's interesting because it seems to be using a lot of kind of organic metaphors and imagery in order to talk about a very kind of 20th century modernity, right. postmodernity kind of problem. And where, whereas this seems to be leaning towards something that lends itself to the language of the planet and of the body in ways that allow people to, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, people don't like to be reminded of their bodies being in control of most of how they think and how they go about living in the world uh, because it's it disassociates them from things like identity, right? Which, which we'll talk about in a second or their idea of like selfhood and things of this nature, even though it's still a part of it. I mean, we tend to be a very, you know, egocentric society that tends to think of a self-centered 
cogito, I think therefore I am. And therefore what I do is because I want it to happen and I will it to happen. Therefore it does happen. And there's some truth to that, but it's not the whole story. And I think using that metaphor allows to tell the whole story of like, look, some things just die and there's transformation and change, but there's, there's a, there's a transition to something else and it, it's not going to return and be the exact same thing ever again. And that's part of the hospicing because I think some models of historical change allow for that revisitation of things that should have died, but didn't, for example. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a, you know, a um, artificial resuscitation again and again of something that wasn't really quite working. Yeah. And then, you know, kind of let's throw a little bit here, you know, or throw a little bit there. And I mean, and this is exactly part of the reason why, you know, they'll focus so much on recruitment first and then retention. But the reality is, is that the retention, you know, if, if you're not actually taking a look at what is happening within the community, Right, because community, you know, and this is something Bell Hooks talks about, right? Community can be the source of, of um, and also friendship, right? Can be the source of understanding how to love. And this is something we don't like to talk about because it, be, it makes us very vulnerable, right? The, the, the talking about love and very kind of intimate or, uh, you know, kind of feelings, people tend to want to, uh, to kind of back away from those. but. You know, she makes a really good point about these instances of, of community um, that they're, they're, that all of the, um, uh, she says this in, in All About Love, New Visions, and she talks about how she's like, all of the greatest social justice movements had a very strong love, love ethic, love for community, love for others, right? And so that's really at the core of it, but we, we filter it through in different ways, or the media filters it through, and we kind of understand it, but if you don't actually look at the community and is that actually a community or is it only a community for some you know even thinking about you know i read cities like a text and read other things like a text where um you know thinking about walking up to a building you know uh okay right ada exists fine but where is that entrance where how how easy is it for someone to enter into this building for example what kind of, of walls, borders, natural or constructed are there that are keep allowing people to pass through or not? And how is that then reflected, not only in the physical structure, which is you know, easier to point out, but also the kind of cognitive structure of sources of knowledge, who is represented in archives, et cetera. I mean, this, is, this goes in so many different directions that it's, it often, I feel like for people who are beginning this work, it becomes overwhelming. And there is kind of that, where they hit that kind of low, because once you start to see it, it snowballs. And then you become very frustrated because one, you didn't see, you didn't notice these things before. And of course, it's a continual process of knowing, right? And, and realizing and, and, you know, and understanding. Um, but you know, I think that there's a frustration there because it's thinking of well, what, what can I actually do, right? And, and I think that that's when it comes to activism, especially edu uh, educator activists, I think that's where that's a very tricky transition. And sometimes I think we lose people and they, they 
kind of burrow back down because it it becomes the like big scary world kind of phenomenon. Yeah, and I think part of that is the propensity to feel that that work needs to result in answers, right? And some kind of solution when the digging deeper is part of that solution, even if it doesn't result in an answer, for example. Right, and I mean, when you say solution, I, I think of like the German, right? So eine Lösung, which is a problem because, right? We had a very, and I don't wanna say that term because there's issues with that. But we've seen this before of people trying to find a solution to a problem and kind of force that where and then that's why I think that that's so important about these for the gesturing towards decolonial futures because one they say gesturing they don't say solving it's a move right because the the reality is is if you work collectively there are many potential futures that can come into the vantage point because it's not a singular identity it's not a singular vision it's one that's constantly you know moving and adapting and kind of incorporating also the different voices and perspectives of people but i mean i think also at the same time it's it's you know it's that we don't know where we're going but that we do know that where we are is unsustainable um and so making it organic and making it more about people as being part of an ecosystem is I think, uh, you know, what I, what I find so compelling. Yeah. I, and, and I mean, oh, that I, I was just talking to you before we started recording about the fact that we're going with audio only and not video audio option. And I'm kind of regretting that at times because people can't see that I'm not in our head we are like at different times not in our heads in agreement of what the other person is saying so yeah. obviously listeners can't see that but yeah i'm in complete agreement with a lot of what you said and i i think that it is important for uh people to start thinking in terms of what you know i, I remember uh being a, i was very lucky i'm not claiming any status here but uh it happened through i, I know someone who knows someone and i got into a panel at the mla with Gayatri Spivak and Carlo Mansovais, and I presented a paper with them. And I remember uh, Gayatri Spivak was talking about planetary consciousness at, at the time. And that's when she, and I always found it a very kind of powerful idea at that time. We're talking years ago, but it made sense to me in terms of like, we need to get beyond these limited notions of consciousness and start thinking about something and, and ontology actually, and start thinking about something much, much more different uh, than the enlightenment model that we're used to that we keep claiming we've left behind but in reality we just keep dragging it behind that like an albatross or what have you yeah well and it's interesting too because when we talk you think back to thomas more you think back to you know uh you know kind of also enlightenment thinkers you know they, they talk about a utopia but you know it, it's interesting when you really take a look at that and uh, and and kind of figure out okay but this 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 concept of utopia and then the fact that you know uh the u.s used the, these kind of lofty concepts for to construct early you know um you know constitutional documents and other things but it becomes then very clear that it is a white christian eurocentric vision of what that utopia can mean which means that it is a benefit for a specific group of people and it 
shut out different ways of of thinking about community of sovereignty of um you know collectives um you know and and, and like uh, so the 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 Diversity and decolonization of the German curriculum is a collective. We, um, we, uh, you know, the the group decided we were we weren't going to become an organization. We didn't want to, to do that. Um, we didn't. We weren't going to be like others and do a mission statement because of issues with that. So we have guiding principles, which are going to that we admit in there that it's in flux, right? That these are things that this is not the end all be all. But we also you know, uh, you know, of talking about what we are concerned about, where we are looking, and that the collective it, it, it guiding principles at the end becomes an invitation. So any any of those uh, any people who identify with aspects of it who want to contribute in small or big ways, you know, are welcome to join it. And I think that's part of the reason why the group, although four five years old now, I'm trying to think how old it is um has seen so much growth i mean because it's it's something where it's different we don't have members fees we you know we're working on different plans for you know um, uh, mutual aid funds and uh, and other things uh, because this is also part of hospicing the field of making sure that people are comfortable as comfortable as can be but also you know not shine away from that kind of radical honesty and love that's needed to kind of care for those in the system. So along those lines, uh, and it connects to what you just said, um, can you just speak a little bit about the different mindsets between a term like collective versus a term like mission? or a collective statement versus like a mission statement, because right now we're undergoing the process of revisiting our mission statement. And we did that a few years ago. And uh, as you know, working at St. Olaf, it's a big part of the institution's identity, I would say. And so uh, I wonder, because I, I agree, but I can't speculate as to whether or not we have the same understanding of the problematic nature of the term mission. Yeah, so, I mean, well, first off, you know, mission statement, and there's a lot of, I am very uncomfortable with using the word mission, just, you know, even outside, of, you know, well, I can't say outside of a decolonial kind of mindset, because that is part of my mindset. So it's not like it's kind of magically, whoop, you know, it's like, I'm not going to be like Drake and flip the, the switch or something. It's going to hospice um, itself. Boom. <laughs> right. Um, but I think that, you know, with mission statement, it's also a projection. And that's also what they were trying to get at in that first question, you know, that first statement is it's a projection outwards of what they would like people to think that they are, which is a lot different because that's simply saying this is who the college is. This is how we identify X, Y, and Z, right? And they, they list it out. But if you're doing something like guiding principles rather than a mission statement, this is something that it is um, an expression, I would argue, of a vulnerability that this is not set in stone, that it is not as rigid as the foundations of the institution, for example, that, that it is something that people are going to make mistakes. 
right? People, you're, you're, nobody is perfect, right? And I think, you know, that in thinking about that in all of these moves that it also opens up the possibility of being guided down a path towards something else too. So it's not, you know, that, that these, you know, it's principles only because these are the focus right now, but, you know, down, down the path. And I always like to think of paths and ways of knowing and, you know, and turning and, and you know, kind of collectives of thinking of Sarah Ahmed's queer phenomenology, you know, that, you know, in many ways, I find that when talking about guiding principles, it's a way of, of, of moving slantwise, of moving away from that well-trodden path that's been the burrowed so far down into, you know, the, the earth, you know, creating damage along the way, so many feet, generation after generation, century after century, that they're not even looking to see that there are there's a different way around it than that by by turning right and this is aspect of phenomenology you are then relating two different things you are turning by turning away from that you are moving perhaps towards the margins you are because you know you you can't you can't see everything all at once and so you can have an idea of what is behind you. You can have an idea vaguely of what's on either side of you, but the further you go behind you, the less you really understand. And I think that that metaphor works quite well with also thinking about the legacy of the past and, you know, uh, you know, Trillo and thinking about past is not pastness, but in the present because it is dictated in many ways, you know, and it's an extended into the future in terms of where we have come along this path. And so by thinking about guiding principles, we can, you can start to imagine and take those initial steps to move away from that path. And then, you know, as you move away from that path, what comes into view, uh, the people you encounter, the connections that are made, not just, you know, um, between different communities and, and, um, different languages, cultures, traditions, you know, um, bodies of knowledge. And I like to use bodies of knowledge, right? Because I feel like it is both physical and, and kind of within people and communities, but also kind of this ethereal, right? Um, but, but all of those things, you know, you can't even, you, you maybe have a vague idea of it if you're heading straight down that, you know, very deeply grooved eroding path, right? That's sinking you in deeper. But if you move away and kind of climb into something else, that's when I think that you can really start to make, you know, find a generative space that, you know, is also not confining you in a, in a certain way. Um, and so that's for me, the biggest difference is that the mission is about establishing something concrete and static and solidified. Whereas guiding principles and collectives are changing. They modulate, people come and go depending upon the times and needs, other things. It has more of a life cycle. It's, it is more alive. A mission is for prosperity. It is for, um, you know, it's for recognition. It's for all of these things that we have associated with institutions, but in reality are, you know, artificial. They, they only promote stagnation. So, so it seems like, and I, 
that it's very much about impermanence and allowing for the natural phenomena that is impermanence. In other words, like nothing is permanent. Change is inevitable. Allow yourself to change if necessary. Try not to remain rigid or else you become one of these so worn out paths that there's no longer a path after a while there's just a chasm there's nothing to walk right and it's not that's not the type of impermanence i think that they're talking about so which ironically reminds me about i think there was just a a news story released today about the permafrost and that the uh, climate change news update situation is even it's just every every you they give out these 10-year reports right that two years later are updated to like five years to and it's like wow the planet's really it's like it's got its own pandemic thing going on right now and it i think it ties into a lot of what you're talking about in terms of had we not had this kind of modernity mindset decades centuries ago we'd probably be in a different place had we taken different paths at different times in accordance to what we were discovering but as we'll find out with that architecture model of the house of modernity a lot of things got in the way because of the blueprint right what we thought it should right. be about but i do want to before we transition to that, i wanted to ask about the last point and the loosening of our attachments to self-images because i like to think of this podcast as trying to address the kind of imperative specifically of loosening one's sense of self uh, at least one self-image could you just briefly talk about that yeah, I mean, so uh, again, I mean, this is where I find, I mean, for me, um, I find some of the work that's being done in queer and trans theory to be really formulative in terms of talking about, not just about intersectionality, um, but but also um, concepts of the self, questions of identity and, and other, you know. And so, you know, um, one point in in Ahmed's queer phenomenology is talking about how you know as you make turns through spaces that actually gives the body shape right so you're kind of defining the body but so but but the bodies also shape spaces you know so that it is a, a kind of a two-way uh, you know interaction but then when bodies do not belong right then this is kind of drawing upon phenomena right, it's, it's a disorientation, right, because you can't orient yourself through the space in the same way that others, so that's what I, what I like about that imagery is that, is that in the body moving through space, it's that it's not a neutral space, and we have to understand that, that, you know, and this is where I think terminology like racial ecologies really helps, it's that thinking about that there is this ecology of, of different forms of discrimination and other things that are the space surrounding bodies and and that and that your how one interacts with the space you know does have an impact on how one feels about the self right but also how one feels about the other and you know and and i feel like you know when especially when someone is from a marginalized or othered right um uh, identity and a body that might move into a space, uh, in particular a white space, and it, it, their race or whatever it may be calls it attention. Um, 
I wouldn't say to itself, but rather others in that space that go unnoticed, that aren't seen as um, outside of that space, right? Um, that then the focus falls then on the other body, right? And this is where, and so I think that navigating those spaces also inevitably is an, a bit of navigating the self, right? And defining the self. But at the same time, you know, for me, I think by kind of loosening the grip on kind of, you know, egocentricism is kind of really focusing on the, the issue isn't the body moving through the space. The issue is the space itself and how the space has been defined. Um, and then that space almost acts as a lens or a filter. You could even say in some cases a funerary veil, right? As because it can be a death sentence depending on space. So that this is kind of how you move through that. I mean, I think that we have to, and this is for me, you know, thinking about that, that's a systemic aspect, right? It is the space. And so I think that by thinking about this more broadly, of course, you're going to, you, you can't disengage from the self, right? You have your lived experiences, you have all of these things you carry with you. But by also thinking about, uh, you know, that's the beauty of working collectively across races, ethnicities, um, genders, um, abilities, all of these different things that, that then you transforming the space because it then it becomes a space where a wider variety of um, identity expressions are welcome. And then that kind of in turn moves away from a hyper-focus on the individual. I don't, I don't know if that makes no, sense. I, I, I think it does, no, it did make sense to me. We'll check in with our listeners later on. But, uh, I think that one of the things that's interesting about what you just said is that, uh, because a lot of people love that idea in theory and almost love that idea in a very kind of touristy sense, but don't understand that what's demanded of you if you're gonna move through those spaces is experiencing the realities that come in with inhabiting those spaces. So in moving through it, you just don't get to consume it and or view it as a spectacle, but you are asked to be a part of it, to live what it means to be a person from that space before you move on to your next space. It's not a Disneyland tour, in other words. Yeah, there's a there's a colleague from, uh, from we call it DDGC for the decolonization mm -hmm. of, and, and diversity and decolonization of the German uh, curriculum collective who, uh, Regina Kreiser, who's um, um, at uh, U, UNC, um, oh, I don't wanna say the wrong city. I'll, I'll, I'll hesitate for a second. Anyway, I believe Asheville, but something that she talks about is advocacy across campus. And so she talks about how, you know, okay, yeah, I need to care about my, you know, this is an institutional example, right? You know, I need to care about, you know, maybe what's going in my, my program. But if I notice that, for example, African languages aren't being taught or the indigenous languages of the area aren't being taught or certain history or art or other things, you know, all of these things aren't being represented. It is, you know, part of kind of this idea, this guiding principle to say, what about this? And, you know, some people, uh, you know, in, in conversations will bring up, well, but one, you know, an additional language, you know, that could take away students from, from German. 
you know, I've, I've often heard her say, you know, that doesn't matter. That's not the point of this. And that's also part of hospicing it, right? It's recognizing that there are needs, there are things that need to be done and advocating. And that's what I mean, I think I'm thinking of, of like recognizing the space for what it is, who is not included in that space and disengaging from the, an idea of self or self-promotion and thinking about what is, what, what could, you know, bringing more into the space and what is, you know, really talking about decolonization and not just metaphorizing right. about it, right? Okay, so that brings me to one of the things that I really loved about the um, Gesturing Towards Decolonial Futures website is the, and I just want to get the title of this pedagogical experiment right, the house that modernity built, which is described as a quote, social cartography inspired by Audre Lorde's famous insight that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. End quote. I think this is an often used quote and sometimes uh, misunderstood quote. And I just first, before we talk about the house uh, that modernity built, if you'd just like to speak to your understanding of that famous Audrey Lord quote, because I think yeah. it ties into some of the hospice stuff we've been discussing. Right. Um... Well, I think that like for me, the first thing that I think of is about reimagining. So I think of tools in a very physical sense, but I also think about tools in a more figurative sense. And I mean, what what I think of as the tools is is largely of, of knowledge, of, of skills, of other things, you know, that have been passed along and, you know, but within a certain system. Right, and so it's like, the reality is, is that you cannot use those tools against the system that built it because by using those tools, it simply rebuilds and kind of renovates and, and continues to um, uphold the system. You, you can't, because those become actions. They're not, it's not um, fossilized artifacts sitting in a museum, although arguably that also connects to some of this. Right, but but it is, but it you can't because it is so structured in a way that the enactment, the use, is is in many ways an approval, is in many ways an extension of this artificial life, right? Um, and so, you know, you in order to under in order to break away from that, you have to set down the master's tools essentially, meaning that you have to think of different ways of, you know, of approaching all of this and of turning away and thinking and thinking, you know, my knowledge is a tool, but my knowledge is a tool that has been structured by a settler colonialist mindset. And that, you know, it is, you know, like they mentioned in the, in the first kind of list of explanations, that it is within and, and outside of me. It, that's really kind of the first step because, you know, you, you know, and then the question becomes, well, but what skills maybe do I, am I not even thinking about what schools that maybe skills do I have that are maybe inherently within me 
that I can I can use to start to move away of 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 and not even tearing it down because there's really no point because again by trying to tear it down you're really just you know recapitulating that that action and so I think it's it becomes very tricky because I mean I think there's a lot of ways to move away from it but I mean I really do feel like that is the core aspect of what she she is is trying to talk about there because Lord is saying this is you know, make it very human, make it very personal, you know, and these are things that, you know, uh, watching a documentary about her years in Berlin, for example, and, you know, her very pivotal role um, in helping to support Afro, Afro and Black German women, um, you know, she often will, you know, recommend to them, tell your story. Because that personal, very personal aspect is a knowledge but it's a knowledge that exists outside of the master's house, right? And I, and I think that that really is the key is not to forget that about, about her, right? Is it, that it is telling those very personal stories about, you know, not, and not just about pain and suffering, but also about joy, about community. And for her community building is incredibly important outside of spaces like in, community spaces of, and also community gardens and rooftops of going into buildings, for example, of encouraging uh, Afro and Black German women to create, you know, a, a center there for themselves of taking this once bombed out building from world that had been sitting there since World War II and, you know, filling it with life, essentially, of community, of other things. So it's like remembering that this you know, in thinking about institutions, whether academic or government or whatever, that is not the beating heart of, of people and of communities. That's an artificial, essentially overseer, right? That was the overseer, not to use this imagery, but she already has it kind of there, overseer out in the field, making sure that the people did what they were supposed to that didn't choose to be there, but were there, right? And I think that, that you have to, that, that's, that's one way of kind of moving away from it. So in many ways, you know, alternative mindsets and alternative ways of approaching the world and the ones that are established as inevitable and the only ones that exist, you know, exploring alterity. Right. Right, and and it, but what what's interesting about it, because, you know, we we're just talking about the individual, in many ways it is, opening up the space for more individuals to tell their personal stories rather than to flatten the human experience into a racial identity or religious belief or political affiliation, right? That, that it is, life is inherently much more complex. Um, human interaction, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Family Feud, right? I was watching like a clip from Family Feud. And, you know, some of these surveys, I look at what, what people say and I'm like, oh man, I, like how did they not bring up this? And they brought up that. But there was one that was very interesting. And the question was, it was like kind of lightning round was what's a four letter word that everybody needs? And overwhelmingly the answer was love. I was thinking food. It's very interesting, isn't it? That that's very interesting. Food was on there, but love. Yeah. Was the one. Wow. And that's what something, it makes me, you know, because the 
you know, when you think about it, there is, you know, that very personal, that, 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 that vulnerability, that opening oneself up, you know, all of that stuff. I mean, it, it, it's something that we often take out of, of the public gaze, right, or lens, except for in ways to try to make money, right? Right. But it's very usually artificial ways or or kind of, kind of fantastic or like kind of sensational ways. But the almost like mundane, everyday caring of for community gardens, you know, (laughs) you know, just, you know, all of these things that really is, you know, we see connections to the biological of people living much longer. I mean, Audre Lorde, for example, went to went to Berlin and, you know, her her partner, Gloria, talks about in an interview that, you know, um, Berlin extended her life, you know, years longer than she should have. And so, you know, it's, it's just a very interesting and she said, yeah, maybe it was in part, you know, kind of uh, they, you know, going to more homeopathic um, doctor there who was really concerned with, you know, the healthy cells and investing in the healthy cells. But I mean, I think on the other hand, you can think about it of that, that, that space of that energy of, of, you know, being around, you know, because she talks about being in community and in communion with, with, with other women, you know, whether or not they are, um, you know, queer or lesbian or however they de- identify that, the, you know, but that, but that kind of space, you know, there is something there that I think that, and that's the kind of knowledge I think she's also talking about. It's sometimes that knowledge that is difficult to document, but it's felt. Yeah. And, and it just reminds me also, as you're talking, how much of what we consider to be identity is nothing but the accumulation of experiences retroactively understood through some lens. Right. right whatever that space or moment the lens allows for so uh yeah very uh a, a very non-conventional to say the least way of looking at some of these issues uh you want to talk about the house and the zine a little bit yeah uh, and because it's so cool um so and i'll include notes for our um listeners so they can access it but um it's basically a zine and they actually have a youtube video about how to fold this up but on one side is basically the uh, house that modernity built and i think uh, underneath the uh, little drawings there's uh captions that kind yeah. of and explain what that specific visual is about so uh, and by the way that you can find this also at the colonial oh, sorry it's sideways the colonial futures.net so the first house uh has the planet and it's titled house exceeds limits of planet so the house of modernity exceeds the limits of the planet with the planet represented underneath the house you know as the ground upon which the house is built and the house at this stage is defined by things like global capital nation state separability and universal reason i think a lot of those kind of traditional enlightenment type of uh concepts we were talking about the one i want to skip to and there's uh i believe eight of these for our listeners to check out but there's a couple here that i want to uh because i think we can't do them all but the floors ones is is I think really interesting, the false promise of universal middle class, or to just, I would 
you could rephrase that or expand it to the false promise of universal recognition under the kind of declaration of the rights of man declaration of independence models of the nation state so this house uh has at the top uh on the it just lists the fact that it's floors and uh what would be i guess the attic of the top of the house we have north of north then we have a dividing line as if that's one room and then we have this big middle room that's separated by a kind of staircase uh and it says north of south and underneath that it says low intensity struggle so that would be the border i think of north of south and the border between north and south uh kind of like where i'm from in nogales sonora arizona uh, and then you have south of north and beneath that you have south of south which is represented by a huge space representing high intensity struggle and i think do you think what, what do you think adrian struggle here survival or political or what's the difference I don't think there is a difference. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I, I really, I really think that, you know, it's that long, long, slow climb. Right. And, you know, for, for, I mean, I mean, I also think that, you know, I think the one thing that strikes me about this imagery is that the more people, you know, that maybe the more people that we try to sell the American dream on, <laughs> right. people, whatever that means, right? The more people are on the stairs, the more people that are in that house and on that stairs, the more weight is put on south of north and in particular south of south, yeah. which means that, the, that there's more and more pressure and it actually begins to weigh it more down which uh, you know in actuality then that means that north of north continues to stay at the very top those right. the very highest earners but those who are trying to climb up the stairs that are trying to to um you know this concept of social mobility or whatever whether through various means right which i think we get a lot of bad information about how you can move if you can move right into right. those places but the reality is is that that will continue to sink right it, it, I, like i don't think of this as, as something stable because it's you know like high intensity struggle i think of it you know it, it it's not built on um on, on very solid foundations because it's not meant meant to in many ways right so it, that means that it's going to continue to sink so that no matter how much further you're trying to move up those stairs in actuality you're adding more weight and the house is sinking down and this kind of applies also geopolitically wouldn't you say it's like nations yeah. and their place in the developing versus developed first versus third kind of thing and 2020 kind of unmasked the myth of the middle class nation that has a chance to work its way up because the pandemic just showed the failures and fractures and that which kind of leads to the next one that i want to talk about which is the one entitled social economic political and ecological crisis which is you know right off of what you said it, it, the house cannot hold that kind of pressure which is reminds me of yates's uh famous poem um the the center cannot hold uh that, that's the line from the poem that's not the title of the poem uh the structural damage one where the unsustainable growth overconsumption surplus labor force mental health crisis uh what is that 
concentration of welfare and rights. Cancellation. Yeah, cancellation, sorry. And the house is completely fractured on the inside. And what I found most interesting about all that are the questions listed underneath the house, because these are questions we keep asking ourselves generation after generation. Do we fix the house? Do we expand the house? Do we build another house? Are other types of shelter possible? So what's your take on this one? Yeah, I mean, I think that in, in you know, that image, you have to connect it in many ways to the first image of understanding that the roof is global capital, that two of the walls are universal reason as an extension of from the enlightenment and also the developing of the nation state, which I mean, those go hand in hand in terms of uh, like temporally, right, of, of enlightenment and then, you know, beginnings of, uh, you know, rise of nationalism as well as the nation state. And, um, but then also the base is trying to be, oh, we're not actually part of the planet, right? And right. so when this starts to, when these walls start to crumble, right, right, the global capital, of course, is going to be impacted because the, there's the issue that the roof can cave in, which is if that's the capital, then, of course, uh, global capital, then, of course, it's a huge concern because those people who are north of north have all of their wealth yeah. right, shored up in this this global capital that is sinking. Right. Uh, and you know then and uh, you know the you know lack of the global capital from the very the north of north as that begins to go down then there is the instability of the nation state in terms of structure in terms of maybe um, social structures um, of um, of you know welfare of of taking care of, of streets, schools, other things, which then of course then deteriorates the concept of the so-called universal reason of equity and, and oh, maybe not equity, but equality and justice, right? So, uh, you know, so it's, I feel like, I mean, honestly, uh, I, do, I do like the, the questions there. Um, I mean, my inclination is not to fix nor expand. <laughs> no, I think, I think absolutely. I think they're just the typical ones, right? <laughs> right, right. I mean, honestly, it, I, I, I mean, I wish that it would just uh, burn down, to be honest, but I understand that that would be very difficult for other people, right? right. So that, that's something that you can't, you know, since people are at different spots and different understanding, you can't, you can't just say, oh, okay, this is, uh, you know, this is how it's going to be. And, you know, James Baldwin talks about this in terms of, you know, and thinking about identity, which I think is also kind of wrapped up in this is that, you know, it, it's that in a lot of times with, with the civil rights movement and with other things, and then, you know, um, marginalized identities, you know, pushing and saying, we would like these rights, we would like this recognition this is a lot of this stuff is going unnoticed. This is, you know, this is not justice. It becomes a fear of a loss of an identity that cannot be defined because that identity was formally um, rooted in a juxtaposition or, or, or whatever, however you want to phrase it, of the other. And so when the other no longer remains stable, kind of like the walls falling apart, then the 
kind of like the the normalized kind of identity, the identity that has been in power, the the one that had fantasies of supremacy, can no longer it collapses like the roof. Yeah. Like, right? like Hegel says, right? You you can't have a a master without a slave. Yeah, well. <laughs> I don't like Hegel. So. No, we, we don't have to talk about Hegel. I was just saying you're absolutely I right. Get what you With, I without get... the other, then the first person that depends on the other for their right. sense of it, self. Right. right. But that's also why Munoz talks about a disidentification, right? Because yeah. it is removing yourself from that, that system in many ways of, of, of realizing that it is not a this or that. It's right. not a question of master or slave. It's that the whole concept of the master and slave is effed up to begin with and needs to be rejected and you know just let it fall apart or die, right? Again, going back to the hospicing, right? Because that whole dynamic is structured around a fallacy, an artificial concept of supremacy or superiority that, that, that can't exist, you know? It can't. It's, it can't hold up, I guess, I mean, it could hold up. I mean, people have held it up for a that's long time. That's the problem. I was just about to say, like, the problem is that it's been, I mean, that's one of the key walls of the house of modernity in some ways. It's like connected to the reasoning, right? I mean, people think in terms of master and slaves and to get out of that, I think is why people don't talk about the fact that the slave is the hero of the story, but only after they undergo transformation. They need to go radical change and it's through suffering and fear that one learns and overcoming that that one learns to take a risk yeah and i'm I thinking like the kojiv interpretation of hegel too so i'm like yeah i see because i like to think about it in the other way is that is that if there are fewer masters and they're more enslaved persons that if they collect together they recognize that their strength is way more than 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 the enslaver could ever have absolutely yeah i'm totally right. on board with that yeah right and so i think of i think of and that's another way of thinking about it of that's your kind of way out that of, of saying uh you know and that's also the recognition kind of in in these graphics too of thinking about surplus workforce but who is dictating who is getting paid who is dictating all of these different things Exactly. And, you know, that those corporations that global capital, if, you know, think about boycotts, think about like ongoing strikes, what if just walk out, yep. you no longer participate. Yep. They can't, what, what would they do? The number of people's backs upon which so many things have been built. Right. That would collapse. That's beyond structural uh, structural damage. That that is a, is a, a complete obliteration of of that building. Which is try which is why you try to force them back to work through suffering, right? By cutting their unemployment checks and telling them like we don't care if you don't like your job. Someone needs to go and pick up these minimum wage jobs that are starting to open up, right? Right, which is where community organizing comes in. Exactly, and that's the pushback. And and honestly, that's like the model that I'm ascribing to is like, we live unfortunately under that, but if you're right, if enough people gain that awareness of the collective sense of self, that's so much more powerful, which connects back to the notion of love and understanding, going beyond yourself and just, you know, that love is communal and it emerges from a communal space, not from you, you know, Hallmark buying a card and you express right. it well. So uh, 
the other side of the zine is uh, uh, extremely trippy. Do you want to take a shot at describing the organic mushroom side of the uh, zine? <laughs> the flip side to the house of modernity? Well, the house of modernity is a problem. This is the horizon, correct? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, the way that I see it is, uh, well, some people... Um, well, some people may see the house modernity built as the far left of it being very complete and that it there's nothing issue, you know, it, no issues. In reality, we're already at the fourth step. Right. Yeah. <laughs> there's already structural structural damage Most there. Most right. And not only that, the, you know, we're dealing with erosion, additional fires, okay. and a dying planet. So the planet's pushing back, definitely pushing back. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, and and so I, I mean, I think that's what's interesting is it becomes this. It is fairly complex. <laughs> I will say the bottom part. It is. Uh, of it is um, kind of it, it, it's interesting because it's like almost using the. I, I mean, this is kind of how I read it. It's like almost using the house as as like a repository or like a prison for all of these colonial addictions in some ways mm -hmm. right um uh, because it's you know you're really kind of breaking these things down and but also showing that it's completely interconnected so you know the walls that modernity built you know are kind of trying to trap all of these things in in inside of and, and many of it, you know, I think of it, you could even make the comparison to like greenhouse gases, for example, right, of, of, of the heat, as the heat from the outside is increasing, right, whether it's strain or stress because of the system that has been created, or because of actions and practices, right, um, that, you know, trying to say, oh, oh, this is fine, sitting amidst a fire drinking your coffee, right? Like right. a dog meme. Um, right, that this, <laughs> this is, you know, that this, that these kind of, if you think about it along those lines of the, of the modernity, that this, you know, that's, that's not really sustainable, but at the same time, you can, you know, they're trying to pinpoint the different aspects of it, at least that's how I read it. So it's no. like, the fears, right, in right. terms of impermanence, incompetence, insignificance, and I'll be honest, I think that fear is such a largely driving force of, of um, attempts at power grabs at January 6th, right, is obviously, was obviously yeah. fear driven, but yeah. also self-insecurity, right, it is this, you know, and I've mentioned this quote before, but um, actually I should, that's something I'm gonna actually look this up quickly because I don't wanna get it wrong. Um, uh, the, this quote from James Baldwin, um, um, right? Uh, the amount that the white man understands, right? About, and this, I'm gonna mess this up. See, I should, this is exactly why I should look this up. Um, um, the, Go ahead, feel free to look it up and I'll explain to our listeners what we're looking at in case they're looking at the zine. What Adrian's describing are the last three houses on the page of the House of Modernity still. And then we're gonna flip to the 
colored side that has the mushrooms and I'll ask her to give me her take on that. But right now she's right. describing the three houses, harnesses, the one that harnesses fear, the other that uh, harnesses compensatory desires, and the other one that houses perceived entitlements. Uh, right. So she's describing the relationships because underneath each of those three houses, unlike the other ones that are represented individually, these are connected as in relationship to each other. So scarcity right. impacts accumulation, impacts property and vice versa. And those are all connected to the way that fears uh, connect to desires, connect to a sense of entitlement, etc. So the quote that I was thinking of is, and you know, you can look at it from race, but I think that, uh, you know, uh, I think that this model of, of what he's trying to describe, it, it could connect to a variety of, of, of these dynamics within kind of a, a colonial fantasy or mindset or imagined supremacy, however you want to describe yeah. it. Colonial um, imaginary, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, well, it is an imaginary, and that's that's what's interesting that it is it is uh, permeated so much into the consciousness as a reality. Yeah. Um, but um, it, it was a piece that so um, James Baldwin wrote for the New Yorker back in 1962. Um, his piece, "Letter from a Region in My Mind," and in it he said. Whatever white people do not know about Negroes reveals precisely and inexorably what they do not know about themselves. And I think that that, like for me, is is uh, that's a quote that I go back to quite often. There's a lot uh, there, right? Because because so much of this is true. Because not only that, it is, um, it's not again, it's not even thinking about the house is is uh, systemic, but that. We have many versions of our house, the house within us, right? That that these are that the way that the you know the fears and desires and entitlements, all of these things are grounded upon something that is a lack of knowledge, which is interesting. So so, what I see as kind of a counterpoint, you know, is that we have these ideas of, you know, controlling knowledge, pushing knowledge, put, you know, like what is preserved, what is taught, what is spoken about, you know, and it's very um, confined and reduced and often oversimplified, right? Um, but I think in many ways, that is only perpetuating the problem of not really understanding whiteness. And when you put that into context of some of the work that Sarah Ahmed has done, I mean, she uses the term of the invisibility of whiteness, right? Um, I wouldn't use that because I find that a very kind of ableist in many ways, but it is a lack of recognition of whiteness as a race, for example, right? right. So that, that it is removed from that, that it is, it is this erroneous understanding that it is removed from the structure. So when we're talking about critical race theory and people are very upset about critical race theory, right? The automatic question is, but isn't being white a race? Exactly. Right. And so then, then this is, I think that's how I, I that's why I think about Baldwin when I think about this other section, because all of these are so interconnected with, you know, even in the presence of mastery, if you don't actually know, or you can't, it isn't apparent to you, or you're not opening your eyes up to the entire system, you're, it's a mastery of a limit, very limited 
function or view. Yes. And so that means it's not a true mastery. At all. It's, like, it's infantile, right. actually, in many ways. Right. And so that it's like the concept of justice or validation or authority is this excerpted, very artificially constructed yep. uh, idea of it, right, that, that is kind of internalized that, and this is part of the reason why, you know, it, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is part of the reason why also, you know, and I think, you know, when some people, sometimes people have asked me, who I, you know, out of American history that I think of, it irritates me the most. And every time I say Andrew Jackson, <laughs> for so many different reasons, not just because we're talking about decolonization, but also for the fact of pushing an ideology, a thought, an identity onto people that, uh, uh, you know, really kind of convincing them of certain things through perks of we're going to do this, or we're going to do that, you know, Irish, uh, you know, Scottish, uh, you know, uh, other, other people emigrating from Europe. It's like, now you're white. And guess what? Now that you're white, if you vote for us, we got all this land here. And guess what? You, you are going to be comfortable. And, you know, talking to people who are struggling because they were themselves under a colonial rule and right. Ways, right and so they're thinking hey wait this time we can identify it's like we were born this way That's right? right we can move and we can do all these things and so they start to get these concepts this is where that middle house of like one of the middle house of comp uh, compensatory desires right and accumulation like hey look at this we're getting all this stuff like we're validated for just simply being us and being born this way but they're not actually defining it. It's all defined in opposition to you are not indigenous. Exactly. You're not black, you're not enslaved. That's right. Right. And so, and this is where it falls apart. This can't hold as, as, as the population changes, as, you know, um, you know, as I feel like as people wake up a little bit to the fact that if you are poor and white, black, uh, Latinx, Chicanx, Hispanic, however, you know, you know, Asian, uh, you know, you know, Chinese American immigrant, right, all of these different things, right, that you have more in common with the people <laughs> who are south of north and south of south than skin color, not to say that that isn't a factor, no. right, that's yes. a layer, but it is that that has been pushed, right, yeah. and it's like when you think about it, it's 200 years in the making. Yeah going to be incredibly difficult to disengage with that and, and you know and at, while you're sitting on unceded land while we're you know we have pushed people essentially into you know ghettos right, right. in various forms and and mindsets so i mean i think that this is all that's how i see it as being all related and yeah it, it, the entry point was about you know whiteness and but i do think you know we can talk about that but then we need to go beyond for me oh, yeah. that's also part of anti-racism that is that interconnectivity and that realization that you know there are various things that are impacting people and the more that we try to segregate ourselves into these things, the, the less productive we're gonna actually be in the long run.
No, I, I totally agree. And, you know, material conditions of existence are important and how one experiences those material conditions of existence can be a basis for solidarity much more than how you identify according to the color of your skin or the identity we're supposed to or you're told to identify with, right? So, okay, uh, flipping the zine over to the colored beautiful side, I love the way that they represent the uh, mycelium at the bottom with that kind of psychedelic different colors. Um, just to describe it uh, just briefly there's a it's it's it, the one side as the flip side to the house of modernity is in color it has a sun in the middle with a kind of rainbow ring around it and uh there's a ground setting with two mushrooms and um, a kind of uh very what i would describe psychedelically rhizomatic uh ground underneath that represents the mycelium which is the uh, network of uh i think the matter that grows on um, fungi and uh the two mushrooms one is uh, called ecological justice the other one is economic justice and underneath them I, I would i'd say maybe the ground that nurtures them are cognitive justice affective justice and relational justice and then underneath those are different ways i think of understanding that cognitive justice for example being nurturing encounters of ecologies of knowledge and ignorances uh, affective justice entailing the reconfiguration of neurobiological connections and relational justice being the relating beyond knowledge identity and understanding which ties in really nicely to some of stuff we've already been discussing um anything you want to say about this page maybe? yeah so i mean well, the one thing the the I, I i love is it's kind of it's below effective justice uh -huh. which it starts with reconfiguring neurobiological connections which you know i i would say is a fancy way of <laughs> rethinking how we how we build how we connect um kind of collectives different ways of creating fostering supporting, caring, investing in those connections um, with, I would say, the environment and, and others. Um, but below that um, are, are two kind of side by side. Um, the first one is this digesting and composting traumas, fears, denials, and addictions. Mm. So in other words, clearing insecurities and emotional constipations, right? And so I think that this is very, interesting because for for me i'm thinking of that there is a cleansing process right and and, and the ideal id uh recognizing right that it is that out of of traumas out of fears or denials or addictions that that it's not going to simply go away right um that right. they're they're you know just like um when you are uh, driving on the freeway and for example, there's an accident and uh, even hours later after the accident has already been cleared, there is still a slowed section there, which is very interesting about the presence of something, even if it's not physically there anymore. Right. Um, and so I think about the, these things of, you know, and, you know, I, 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 it comes to mind, um, right, Christina Sharp's work on, you know, on wake work and of living in the wake and kind of thinking about this, of this, that, that for her, you know, one way that she defines wake work is a consciousness of, and it's, you know, she's playing upon all the, you know, the many definitions of wake 
right? Of sitting and 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 in wake, right? After somebody has died, as a celebration of life, of remembrance, of wake, as in I am awake, mm. right? Of being conscious. Um, and of course, you know, her entry point is being, you know, wake as in the the path behind a ship as it crosses yeah. water and yeah. displaces. And so I think that for me, which is interesting, is that it is about a consciousness and a recognition and a composting. I view that as it's is kind of thinking of of taking this, of taking this knowledge of understanding these things, recognizing it, talking about it, and letting it go, but doesn't mean that it no longer exists. Right. That it becomes something that creates then, that it becomes a way of 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 producing knowledge, right? So rather than thinking of 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 knowledge as a very static thing, of thinking of, of it as a modulating and um, interconnecting um, and also conversational, I would say. That's the one thing people, I feel like, take out when we think about knowledge is that there's conversations that are there, whether it's between the, you know, the reader, you know, and, you know, or reader, consumer, however you want to, I don't like to use consumer because it's very corporate, right? But but kind of, you know, as you are, although consuming works here because of the digesting, right? So yeah. consuming in the very physical sense of consuming, of taking this in, there is a conversation there. It's never static. And so by thinking about knowledge of that, of imparting knowledge through conversation, through interaction, through, uh, you know, um, even there was like a, uh, something that I saw, it was a very beautiful thought of, um, um, Eric Gardner had worked for a while um, in, in horticulture, I believe, for public works. And somebody was talking about how there was a kind of comforting idea that some of the plants that he put into the ground may have fostered life that wow. continued to be there. That's cool. And so that's kind of what I'm talking about is of this knowledge. And that's where I think that thinking about it organically of 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 thinking about it's actually a poem i think it was in the new yorker if i can find it and think of the title i will i will mention it um but uh you know that's what that's what i i found it <laughs> a small needful fact by ross gay um it was, nice it was, title mm -hmm. um and maybe if we have a second afterwards, I will I'll, I'll, uh, I'll read it because it's a very, very short poem. Oh, but, please. Um, but, but I think because then that connects to nurturing encounters of ecologies of knowledges of ignorances, right? And so a, a part of this is, is a letting go. And the only way we can let go is if the house is gone, right? If we're no, or at least we're no longer in the house. And I think that's what that's what's key is that you know as much as there may be a preservation of of you know of of knowledge and we think knowledge production it's a very limited knowledge production um, at least when we're talking about you know academies in terms of legislation of other things because we're still in the house yeah so. Uh, there, it is not as generative, supportive, and connected as, as it could be. And I think that's one of the biggest problems that we're seeing, at least, you know, not just in the United States, but, uh, you know, uh, around the world, is a lack of 
well, first, uh, I would say, you know, connection, but also empathy. But empathy is an extension of connection. Yes, absolutely. And it's such an old human problem, the fear of leaving the house or the shelter and fear of not finding an alternative. And that connects back to reimagining, right? And the, the risk and the courage to imagine an alternative, which ironically, you know, a lot of people would define utopia that way is the courage to imagine an alternative, not Moore's alternative per se, but an alternative in the first place to the, to what exists. So. Yeah, um, yeah, the, and that's that's what I always find very interesting about it is because, like, for me being a philologist, I'm very concerned with um, how can I put this about the etymology of words and where they actually, you know, where they, you know, because that's what's so interesting is that people been utopia is a positive thing but literally nowhere nowhere right <laughs> and so this is something where i cannot move away from that where it, yeah. it, it's not living people need to build it's a house not, on nowhere <laughs> right it is the not place and 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 then of course because it is thinking about you know people talk about a perfection and again you know me being a kind of language nerd, I think of perfection linked to perfectus. Perfectus meaning lacking nothing, utterly complete. <laughs> that that's 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 not only unsustainable, right? For even you know, maybe you get a momentary glimpse of something, but that also detracts from the fact that it, it, it is not that. What is then the point of life? Is it about uh, space? that is created is it about or or you know is it about something uh, you know is it about is it about feeling complete or lacking nothing and for, for me that sounds like something very stagnant i mean like you know it's a done deal then it's like okay well what am i going to do with the rest of my life right <laughs> <I don't> think. <laughs> um but I mean, I just, I find that very, very interesting when, when people, um, you know, think about it that way. Um, yeah, well, people want to rush to nowhere. People want to rush to no place, you know, and uh, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's important that we remember those names and it's, it, yeah, it disconnects. It goes back to this, you know, notion of what, what is progress and what is the telos of our progress. It's like, maybe, maybe you're better off not having one and just going with the flow for a while and see where like what's available as opposed to what you fantasize as available and want to actualize and force into the world. So, okay, so we'll end because I've had you here for, thank you for your time. We'll end with this crazy question of, Speaking of unsustainable situations, what's, you know, I know that you've done a lot of anti-racist training in the college. So if you could speak to that a little bit, but also put it in the context of what we're seeing right now in Palestine and the kind of unsustainable house that is literally crumbling there uh, under a lot of kind of master narratives that want yeah. to not die. Yeah, that is that is very tricky. I mean, I so yes, I have I have done work with with anti-racist pedagogy, right? Um, workshops at Saint Olaf um, and beyond. And successful ones, by the way. I, I read some of the reviews. I got access to the files. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm glad that they were 
content. That's my most polite way to, to phrase this. Well, thank you. <laughs> for, for, for me, it is, you know, an ongoing process and it really is. And I think that this is in many ways connects not only to talking about, you know, kind of the decolonial futures, but thinking about Palestine, thinking about this unsustainable house, thinking about the master's tools uh, and all of these things is that um, with, with anti-racist workshops, the first thing that um, I do as an activity is a deep listening exercise. And part of the reason for this is because although we may say throw anti-racist in front of any number of things, right? At the end of the day, it really is about connection and how can we start to foster connection, understanding, recognition, all of these different things. Really, I think to listen, not to listen to answer, not to, to listen to, um, to kind of draw out um, some sort of speaking point, not to, not to listen to, uh, you know, to, uh, construct some sort of, of, of um, uh, you know, uh, rebuttal or or to manipulate, right? What someone said, right? To take it in, to use uh, as like a verbal weapon, right? Ammunition against against others. It really is to listen to understand, and that's part of the reason with the deep listening exercise. It is talking about everyday things, both the highs and the lows, and whether or not the person the person suspends the egocentricism for a second simply to hear to listen not just to hear right to really listen and take the time to say if i understood you correctly i hear you speaking about this or that and then we talk about after the exercise you know how did it feel to be the speaker how did it feel to be the listener and, you know, there are some people, uh, um, you know, that I'll say do get quite emotional because they feel like for the first time they, they were expressing something, somebody listened, and it was just one moment. But then I start to think of, and, and, you know, I, t I, I talk to people about what if that moment was repeated multiple times throughout a semester, through multiple interactions, through meetings, through other things. What if that was something that became a different way of knowing? What, you know, think about, you know, you know, just imagine the possibilities that could take place, the type of connections that, you know, because we, we also know, at least through studies of psychology, you know, that just like how I mentioned the traffic jam, right, uh, or the accident on the freeway, the opposite is also true, right? I used, started with the negative example, but the, but but even something as simple as someone, right, you know, then there's a pay it forward thing, which irritates, I won't get into why it irritates me, but it's like, do it, but don't try to take credit for it because it's not the point isn't you, right? The whole point is it's not about you. Exactly. Paying it forward, right? Yeah. But think about the little things of, of um, holding open the door for someone or if someone looks confused asking to, you know, in, in a way where it's like, you know, you, you know, do you need any help with anything? You need help finding something, right? 
And if they say no, not getting upset with them, but simply saying, okay, have a nice day and walking away. Like all of those different things, like, although you may not see the impact, right? It doesn't mean that the impact's not there. And I mean, this is what I think of because although it may be framed as anti-racist, you know, pedagogy workshop, it really is about community building. It is about working as a collective. And also, just as I said before, you know, when we talk about critical race theory, that whiteness is often excerpted out of that, that, that the instructor, the person in the classroom is also part of the classroom community, that there is an engagement level. They are not the expert because that, that is something that only will, um, you know, uh, recapitulate or kind of rebuild those very harmful colonial structures. But rather, if you're coming together as a community, as an engagement that, that you're coming together as a collective, then you can start to, when you think about like the global aspect of it, that within the classroom, there's almost a microcosm and you start to be able to use language in different ways. You start to think about different ways of describing things, of interactions, of, you know, of exchange, of building, of creation of knowledge, right? Um, and so, and, and the reason why this connects to me, you know, I think of, of Angela Davis and things that she's talked about, right, in Freedom is a Constant Struggle, of, of assistance that, you know, of, of tips of other things from people in Palestine, especially from the Gaza Strip, that they were tweeting and through social media were giving tips to people who were protesting for Black Lives Matter, right? And that, and that also kind of thinking about the, you know, I believe it's, it's G4, right? She talks about this very large corporation that is doing the training, both for sometimes prison guards, police officers, but also for guards in Palestine. And that's part of the reason why they had this knowledge. And so this is another way of, 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 of kind of circumventing those, those channels of knowledge to create connections and understanding um, and community. And so, I, you know, I think that, you know, as much as people I don't, I don't want to say not to use labels. I think that it's important to help to define yourself, right? I think that uh, in some ways, but yeah. I think that that shouldn't be your guiding principle, right? Right. right? That your guiding principle should be something more, that it extends to, to the, the understanding that individuals have this layering of life experiences and that you, but also go easy on yourself that you also have a layering of life experiences, which may, you know, even if it is an unpleasant interaction or becomes hostile because of word usage or because of other things, this is where the deep listening comes in of sometimes taking that minute, minute of not just focusing outwards and pointing a finger of, well, this person used this word, therefore this means they're that, taking a moment to point inwards and say, why did I have that strong of a reaction? What is this bringing about in me? It has to be both ways, right? Because that colonial structure, those mindsets exist within us and without, without, right? So we have to constantly be doing this, this negotiation. It's almost like checking yourself before you react to make sure that that reaction is appropriate to the situation as opposed to simply just reactionary. Yeah, as a right. reaction. Yeah. And also taking the time to, you know, we talk, you know, I talk about like 
you know, calling in is an investment. People don't like that when we talk about accountability, but for me, that is, that is showing radical care because it is an investment in that person or institution to taking the time to break something apart and say, this, this is causing harm. This is creating issues, right? But, but the, at the same time, we have to also look inward too. I mean, like, this is, this is, we have to also invest in ourselves. We also have to have radical care and love and other things for ourselves and for community, right? As part right. of it, so. It's hard to do one without the other, right? So, yeah. Well, thank you for a very stimulating conversation that went all over the place like it should, like nature does. And so, no, I think it was pretty, uh, I think there's a lot of underlying themes here, hopefully that our listeners can pick up on. So anything you're working on, Adrian, any book projects, any books coming out, articles, pro uh, online projects, new anti-racist training uh, uh -huh. updates? <laughs> Yeah, uh, there are, there are things on the horizon, but rather than make it about myself, honestly, I kind of like to, you know, last thing, if I can read the short poem that Please, I Please, by all means. Yeah, I think that's a, a good way. Um, so this is again, um, a, a small needful fact uh, by Ross Gay. Um, and it was, it looks like it was part of, uh, uh, it was published in 2015. Um, and there's a lot of garden and ecology kind of uh, imagery. Um, and so he's, he's oh. Is that Eric Gardner worked for some time for the Parks and Rec Horticultural Department, which means perhaps that with his very large hands, perhaps in all likelihood, he put gently into the earth some plants which most likely some of them in all likelihood, continue to grow, continue to do what such plants do, like house and feed small and necessary creatures, like being pleasant to touch and smell, like converting sunlight into food, like making it easier for us to breathe. Wow. Wow. That's a strong ending too. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It really kind of brings out the the beauty of, of extending beyond yourself, right? Of being non-identical once in a while and seeing yourself in actual living things like plants and trees. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that. That was a, a bonus. I was not expecting to end this first. Uh, I don't know what you call it. What should we call these chapters, episodes, uh, installments? <laughs> yeah, we'll call them that because you just said, I'm gonna call rooms. This first room <laughs> of the house, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, we'll just say the first episode. So yeah, thank you so much for your time, uh, Adrian. And uh, I hope I don't have to title this retroactively uh, in honor of uh, Pretty and Pink, If You Leave. I don't want to title it that song. So. <laughs> <Okay>. Inside <laughs> joke. All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, we'll see uh, our listeners next time. Thanks, Adrian. Thanks. Thank you. Oh, and don't forget to please subscribe to future episodes if you enjoyed today's. Thanks.